He's amused Cam Newton. He's been insulted by Charles Barkley. When some idiot in the press asked him, if you know what you know now, would you have scheduled this game? He's interviewed Matthew McConaughey. I do say go, Tarion. And he's taken on Big Blue Nation. As he, he's just completely taken the wind out of my sails. <laughs> it's time for The Drive with Josh Graham. You are on a Monday drive, WSJS, News Talk Sports for the Triad, where we might as well have a new segment titled Today in Bryce Young, because it feels like almost on a daily basis, there's going to be something to talk about with him. After all, he is the number one pick in the draft, and that's only going to intensify. Talk surrounding him as the fall inches closer. With that in mind, today was day one of OTAs for the Carolina Panthers, and it's pretty clear already that Bryce Young is ahead of schedule. That was made evident in a subtle moment this morning when Bryce first arrived in the building. Remember, he's been a Carolina Panther for 25 days. It's day one of OTAs. He doesn't fully have the playbook yet, or at least he shouldn't fully have it yet. But apparently, he got the script over the weekend for what day one was going to be like, the play script, the things they were going to run. And when he walked into the office and saw Andy Dalton, he came up to him with a question and said, looking at this play script real quickly, this doesn't seem to be right. And he noticed there was a tag on one of the plays that seemed off, that seemed wrong. And Andy agreed. Oh, wait. Yeah, that does seem a bit off. And they went to the Panthers coaching staff and apparently, yeah, he noticed this one little detail on one play in the script that seemed a bit off because that's how dialed in he is, knowing what the play should be, what the tag should be and how it's supposed to look like. Again, day 25 as being a pro. Day 25 of having this playbook. Day 25 of being a Carolina Panther. Here was Bryce on that moment. Yeah, you know, just getting the getting the script before practice, you know, going through it in my head, you know, practicing everything. And um, there was something that I was, it was just a tag on something based on the formation. It didn't make much sense but it was just because it was a different tag and you know talking about an easy fix they had actually already fixed it by the time we we got here in the morning once I, I talked to coach Bob but again I, I just I want to be prepared you know I I, I want to look through everything and go through everything and give myself day 25 this is exactly what you want if you're the Panthers coaching staff this is exactly what you want from your number one pick this focused on the details this bright and this is why they traded up to take the guy number one his strength was always the intellectual side of the game. The criticisms was the physical piece, were the physical pieces of it. The positives were his acumen. What was the buzzword? Processing. That was talked a lot about with Bryce Young. He sees the game a little bit differently, and thus, he should be ahead at these things. He started two years at the pressure cooker that is the University of Alabama playing in the SEC. On top of that, Mac Jones in the national title season Bama had last waxed everybody that season so much that Bryce played in nine games his freshman year. So on top of being the starter the last two years and the best quarterback in college football in the toughest conference and perhaps the toughest place to play, he also got nine additional games his freshman season too. He's ready to go. Frank Reich, he had high marks for Bryce Young's first day of OTAs. 
it was 10 out of 10. I mean, you know, just, and so were the other guys, but just com complete command, control, poise. You could tell the way he was seeing it, the way he, working through progressions, accuracy in the throw, ball placement of the throw was all very good. Yeah, he's so excited. 10 out of 10. I'm getting varsity blues Billy Bob vibes from Frank Reich. Usually I get uh, Kevin Costner vibes. I think his voice sounds a lot like Costner, but I'm getting, I call it a 10. I give it a, uh, a 10, a 10. <laughs> That's Frank Reich. He's standing there on the sidelines watching Bryce Young day one of OTAs. He's like, give it a, I'll give it a 10. I give it a, uh, a 10, a 10. They're going to figure out a way to start him day one. That's how this was all designed. When we had Scott Fitterer on the show, when Scott talked all throughout the process after trading for the number one pick, they wanted to be in a position. What's the expression they use? To drop a quarterback in. We're just going to drop him on in and start him. That's why you trade for the number one pick, and then after doing so, you bring in Andy Dalton. So he understands the assignment. It's why... For the first time in Panthers history, you hire an offensive-minded head coach who's a former quarterback and then equip him with Josh McCown as the quarterback's coach and a guy who came from the Sean McVay tree and Thomas Brown. And you have these analysts because David Tepper has $13, $14 billion to blow. So here's Jim Caldwell on top of that and Parks Frazier is your passing game coordinator you have this Avengers-like staff for developing quarterbacks. Their role is to get Bryce Young ready to go. And Andy Dalton is part of that, too. So they're going to figure out a way. And right now, it seems that Bryce is ahead of schedule. Day one of Panthers OTAs. On Twitter, at WSJS Radio. If you want in on today's show, 336-777-1600 is the phone number. Will Dalton is the executive producer of this show. WD. Between NASCAR's return to North Wilkesboro, the basketball we had yesterday, the golf, the PGA Championship we saw yesterday, what took precedent to you as a sports fan yesterday? Honestly, I was kind of keeping up with each thing equally, like flipping through, like I had the PGA Championship championship on during the afternoon, I was watching the basketball game, I was watching the race last night with my dad, like I was kind of plugged in a little bit of everywhere. Yeah. A lot of stuff going on. Tonight, it's game three of the Carolina Hurricanes series with the Florida Panthers, the Eastern Conference Finals, as that series transitions to South Florida tonight for game three. And even though... Even though they lost the first two games on home ice, it's not time to bury the Canes just yet. I was at game two on Saturday night. Thank goodness it was only one overtime. Still found a way to show up at church at 9.15 in the morning despite being back at like 1.30 <laughs> earlier. Don't think I would have done that if it was like WD in game one, you getting back at four in the morning oh. into your house in Greensboro. So we were thankful for that, even though the result wasn't what we wanted. But going into that locker room, I fully expected WD for it to be a despondent place. The margins being so small, you lose game one and quadruple overtime. You lose game two and overtime two. You had every opportunity to win, but that's not what it felt like. Jordan Martinook, he was ready to talk to us. Tell us, oh, it's, it's another loss, but we're down two zip. We can, we can figure it out. We always do. We always do bounce back. And that was the message. It's not time to bury them because of how small those margins were. 
you are talking about a couple of overtimes. And frankly, the Hurricanes, they deserve better on Saturday night. The first period, they're all over Florida, outshooting them, I think, 20-5, to five, if memory serves correct. They needed a second goal there. They didn't get it. Um, they had a bad break with the review, but then again, so did the Florida Panthers. They had the first great chance in overtime. A lot of the focus was, oh, Florida scored early in overtime this time. Well, Carolina should have scored earlier. 15 seconds in, Jordan Stahl had that look, but they ran into a hot goalie, which is often the story this time of year. Sergei Bobrovsky just a little bit better than Ante Ranta was. Freddie Anderson going to be back in net for game three, by the way, tonight. Then you just look into the history. In hockey, there are plenty of examples of teams winning the series after dropping their first two games at home. Plenty of examples of that. In these playoffs, in fact, the Devils against their rivals dropped their first two games against the New York Rangers, still won the series in seven games. But you might be saying, Josh, we saw how much the Devils were a contender. Carolina took care of them in five games. Contenders, Stanley Cup teams, they don't fall behind two games to nothing, losing their first two games at home. The 2006 Carolina Hurricanes did. Their first two games of the playoffs. They lost at home to the Montreal Canadiens. And do you know what they did? They didn't win in seven. They won four in a row to win that series. So do not write off the games. They know they have to win the night. Plain and simple. They know they have to win the night. That much is simple. You can't fall behind three games to nothing. But Rod Brindamore, here he was after the game, confident, given the Canes' track record, they're going to respond. It's tough because, you know, again, these are the tough losses. It's... To, you're right there, and you know you maybe should have had it tonight. And, you know, it is it is what it is, though. So, we'll, you know, do the same routine we just kind of came through. We've been through this, so this is not, you know, something that we have to, uh, you know, this is not new to us. We've been kicked in the teeth there a lot these last few years, and we've always responded. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, we will next game. And hockey players would know about missing teeth. It's the drive with Josh Graham, WSJS. Let's go down the rabbit hole, the North Carolina rabbit hole, that is. Jeremy Markovich joining us in studio. In addition to the rabbit hole, you also do stuff at Wake, yes? Yeah, I work at Wake Forest. That's, that's, my, that's my job. I'm a director of communications for the Program for Leadership and Character. There's yeah. a lot, but it's just I do lots of fun communication stuff for really smart people. All three of us, WD, you, myself, we've been short on sleep a little bit over the last few days. WD was at the four-overtime game last Thursday for the Canes. I was at Saturday's uh, one-overtime game, so I'm not complaining by any means. And you were out at North Wilkesboro past midnight last night. We'll get to the race in a second. But since you mentioned your tie to Wake Forest, baseball. Number one in the country, and we just got this note in here, that they cleaned up in the ACC Baseball Awards. Rhett Lauder, Pitcher of the Year for the second straight year. Tom Walter, named ACC Coach of the Year. How about this? In a two-year span, ACC Football Coach of the Year, Dave Clawson. ACC Basketball Coach of the Year, Steve Forbes. ACC Baseball Coach of the Year, Tom Walter. Five players are named on the first team All-ACC. Four others are on the second and third teams. Now, if you've ever been to the couch, which I've been several times, it's a smaller park, and I'm struggling to figure out when they're hosting regionals and super regionals how they're going to be able to accommodate everybody. That's going to be tough. Yeah, you know, I don't... It, it, 
it's one of those places where you know like wake forest is just such like a, like everything is like small and big there at the same time mm-hmm. so wake forest obviously small school the athletics footprint is very very large like in fact i got to walk around inside uh the football complex for the first time about a month or two ago as part of my job and uh when i was in there um you know just this large thing like wow this is this is huge it's amazing um, and then also in there, there was like a, like an arcade, like an old school, like wake football, like arc, like Pac-Man looking thing. And my son, who is eight, uh, loves, he's gotten into like the old NES games. And I took a picture of that. And he's like, when, when can I do like early decision to Wake Forest? Because I just, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like the, 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 that's not for everybody. You got recruited. Yeah. Yeah. Like you get, you might have to play football there to be able to play the video game, buddy. Like if that's a trade off you're willing to make, that's cool. And you also, you get to go to Wake Forest, but like. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it, I, I love that place. And, and, and actually this is just, again, a small place. I was in a meeting a few weeks ago and, uh, um, the guy that was in the meeting was kind of presenting to a small group and he was kind of talking about himself and everybody's kind of listening and they're engaged, you know, like really good, smart people that I work with. And then he kind of says that, also one of the things that I do is I'm the motorcycle deacon and everybody just like sat up straight. <laughs> Like they kind of sat up straight. <laughs> now we're listening, and and like, oh, oh, okay. And it was kind of like he knows that, like, okay. At the Q and A session afterwards, somebody's gonna be like, okay, back to the being the motorcycle deacon part. And I was like, do you get a lot of wind resistance on the head? Is there like a top speed? He's like, yeah, you really can't take that out on like University Parkway and just rev up the motorcycle without like straining your neck to keep that thing on but yeah i mean just just pop met motorcycle beacon it's a good dude the north carolina rabbit hole seems like a good transition that story <laughs> to some of the stories that you tell in crabbithole.com so getting to north wilkesboro at what moment last night did it feel real dale jr last week and daryl waltrip were mentioning to us that it would seem real only when they see the green flag wave and there are cup cars out on that old surface that have been there since the early 1980s. You were there. When did it feel real? Uh, it felt real as soon as I pulled in. Um, and not before that, because one of the things that I was worried about, I, I, I was there when they ran late models back uh, last August. Yeah. And, and you know, the drive in from the highway down Speedway Road to the actual track, if there's nobody out there, it takes about five minutes. It took me about two hours. To make that drive. At about what time? Uh, I know you're probably smart enough to try and get there early. I try to get there early. I was actually coming from work and I, I left afterward. And and they, you could hear as I was walking in, the races part started at 8. They're vamping. They're like, okay, well, you know, just a few more people come in here. We'll, we'll, we'll get around started, everybody. Like they knew so many people were just trying to get there. And and there they had everything ran really smoothly. I mean, like super smoothly. Like there was no way I got right up. I parked where I was supposed to park. I got right in. But I think it was coming around the corner and seeing this entire big field that had really been just vacant for 27 years. Nothing in it. And it's full of RVs and flags. And you can smell people cooking hot dogs and and, and just like talking to each other and Golf carts going around and people walking around. The mer- I mean, so like walking up and seeing that full was incredible. And and one of the guys that I talked to nine years ago, Dean Combs, who 
you know, his family was the family that controlled half of, of, of that racetrack really since its inception. You know, he lives on the property. You can look, you can sit on his back porch and look across this field. And at the time, you just watched the, the speedway rot. And you can't even see the speedway now because there's so many things in front of it now. It's it's incredible. Um, like that is the part where it got real, just seeing like a NASCAR race happening there. Like just walking up and seeing people getting in, buying things, like the infield full. Like it was just as soon as you got there, you're like, this is real. This is really happening. And if you want great storytellers do a great job of telling a bigger story through one person. WD, he hasn't seen the movie Miracle. He's going to watch it later this week for ah. the first time. And that entire story is told through the lens of Herb Brooks, the coach. You could tell the story of North Wilkesboro through Marcus Smith's lens, where you mentioned the Combs family that owned half of it. I forget if it was him or the other side that sold it to Bruton Smith, who might be the most hated person in North Wilkesboro. He's the one that halted all races being there for good back in 1996. His son is Marcus Smith, and he is without a doubt the primary reason that last night was able to happen. What most fascinates you about his story? I think that just that he is so completely different than his father, and they're from the same family. Yeah, he owns the racetrack. Owns the, the racetrack. Uh, the very short version, If for, for, for those who don't know exactly what happened, to get caught up, North Wilkesboro opens uh, 1947, first NASCAR race in 1949. Supposedly, if you believe, if you're if you're a truther about this sort of thing, actually NASCAR was founded in Wilkesboro and not in Daytona around the same time. But basically, uh, this track operated for a very long time. Enoch Stanley, one of the owners, was great friends with the France family, and they let him keep on running races there at this tiny track that was now in an environment where all the tracks are getting bigger, uh, the speedways are getting longer. Uh, he kept on being able to run his little race in North Wilkesboro through it all. And and in 96, actually 95, 96, um, Enix Daly dies. And Bruton Smith um, kind of sees some turmoil happening, goes to the Combs family and says, I need a racetrack date for my, my track in Texas. I can't get one. I have to basically buy your half of the track and take the date. But the plan is I will... You let you have the other one. You can still run run race. I have plans for this place because he thought he was going to get the whole track. Well, that didn't happen. The Staley family um, was very much like we are not selling to Bruton Smith. In fact, we don't even be, we don't want to be in business with Bruton Smith because this man is like you know has so much wealth. We can't be an equal partner with him. Uh, Bob Bear, who owned New Hampshire International Speedway, took it over and took over, bought the other half. The two men were 50-50 owners. They did not like being 50-50 owners with each other. And so it was just a a 27-year stalemate, basically. At some point, Bruton Smith owns the entire thing, um, but just as like, this place is so far gone, I'm going to let it rot. Basically, he could have kept it going um, had he gotten everything, but he didn't, and he holds a grudge. That is Bruton Smith. I mean, Bruton Smith is not the kind of guy that you trifle with. I mean, uh, the reason why when you drive down to Charlotte and the road is called Bruton Smith Boulevard is not because they love Bruton Smith so much because, uh, you know, uh, that, that's not what they, when they named it after him. They named it after him because he was threatening to pull the race out of Charlotte unless he got the concessions he wanted from the county down there. So they're like, no, we love you. This so is great. It's pretty obvious. It's He's pretty hated. So yes. my question to you. Yes. His son is Marcus Smith. He makes North Wilkesboro happen. 
what what does he love so much? Why was he so willing to fight so much for North Wilkesboro? You know, I think he saw something there that he just he had his eyes open to it. I think it started when he went down there with Dale Jr. to weed whack to help weed whack the place to get on iRacing. Yeah. So you have and then so you go there and he's like, Wow, look at this place. It's all still here. Like it's the reaction that like generations of people who have showed up there in the intervening time have realized like this place looks like they just left it yesterday. And he goes down there, he sees it. Then he sees the reaction to iRacing, like it being the number one track on iRacing. He's like, huh. And then Dale Jr.'s an advocate for it. He starts thinking a little bit. People in 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 Wilkesboro, that area, Wilkes County starts saying, like, you know, this is this is gonna this could work for us. It slowly kind of dawns on him. And he I think he realizes sort of the thing that I think a lot of people realize is that like, you know, there is something there in small places. I think if you think about the places where you have maybe the strongest memories. Yeah. They aren't always in like it, it, I mean, you you might remember going to see some show in some gigantic stadium with a hundred thousand people, and it was just a great concert. You might remember that. You might you know, it's not like that's a bad thing, but like, do you remember the show when there's like five people in a little club, and it's tiny, and there's nobody there, and you got to see some band before they made it big? This is an excellent point you brought up in your uh, story, ncrabbithole.com. It is Jeremy Markovich who's with us. That for both practical and societal reasons, that last night was significant and happened because of the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, Jim Utter, very smart dude, uh, who covers, you know, no, has forgotten more racing, racing stuff than I will ever know, you know, made this point to me. And I was talking to him last night. He's like, yeah, I mean, pandemic causes NASCAR to think about differently about what, where can we run races? If we don't have people, it kind of takes that. It, it makes us think about things a little bit differently than we're used to. L.A. Coliseum race happens. Chicago, what's coming up happens. Yeah, and now North Wilkesboro. And even thinking about like Bristol running on dirt. Yeah, I mean it's the same thing. It's like you think out of the box because there's no suddenly one of the big rules is off the table. So now you're like, well, I hadn't even thought about this, but I guess we could run it here. So that happens. Also, the recovery money that ends up going toward the track to reopen it doesn't maybe doesn't come along, and also like. In some way, I think there is Zoom fatigue. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I came into studio today is like, because like I do stuff on Zoom all the time, but I'm like, if I can come in studio and talk to you, that's like a lot better. It's a better experience. I'm happy you chose that. Yeah, you know, hey, we're here now. So, so that is one of the things that happens. And I think what you're realizing is the things that happen in smaller places are more intimate. You feel them more. Um, you know, it is hard to be there with like a hundred thousand of your best friends, but if you're there in a place with a quarter of that, where everybody loves it, everybody is into it, everybody realizes that wow, they shouldn't even be here. It feels like you're getting away with something. It feels like feels like you you stumbled into something amazing. I think that is what the feeling was last night. You know, Kyle Larson ran away with this thing. He didn't. He he about lapped the field, and he said. Man, I was looking five with five laps left. I was looking into the stands, and I was like, "I hope these people don't leave." Not to be corny, it sounds like North Wilkesboro ran away with it too. I mean, it really, it really did. I mean, it was just like they stayed. 
they loved it. They got excited. I talked to Jeff Gluck, another great reporter, who was like, you know, I used to do this thing where I would just like rate the driver interruptions by, by basically by noise level, you know, not by yays or boos, but just by like the general reaction. And he's like, I had to stop doing that because you do this at a lot of these big tracks. Nobody pays attention. The drivers come out and there's like, eh, there's like, like you know, a few Smatterings, people. Yeah. yeah. There, everybody was into it. So he was, and, and, the, and the, you tell the drivers knew this too. I mean, Ross Chastain, by the way, got the biggest reaction. The second biggest was Kyle Busch who came out and, and, and you know, knows, he knows his lot in life. He, he knows that he's going to get booed. And so he comes out and as his entire pit crew does a very grandiose like bow uh, into the booze and but like again that only happens if the entire place is engaged for the driver introductions a thing that gets lost in so many other places and it was just it was such a great environment because everybody there cared everybody there was there because they appreciated what they were seeing they weren't there because it was like a thing to do they were there to see racing come back, and that's exactly what they saw. He's on Twitter at Deathly Inane. It is NC Rabbit Hole Online. It's uh, Jeremy Market that. Check this out. We're on at five. The perfect blend of sports and pop culture happens this evening at six with The Rich Eisen Show. Okay, let's get this show rolling. Now back to the drive with Josh Graham. We've got a lot to talk about. We can get into the NBA series from over the weekend that are now both three games to zip, or we can dive into story time where I came face to face with my own fat head. Shout out to Kyle, the Amazon driver, who's a regular phone caller who has created the Josh Graham fat head tour and over the weekend on Saturday morning, I got suited up and took Willow the dog and Sarah Bradford to get portraits done of us three. Elegant. WD. The place was super nice. The people there are pros in Winston-Salem. And I'm wearing a suit. Willow the dog's got a nice bow. Sarah Bradford... Really nice dress on. We were shooting for the types of portraits that you might see like of your grandparents or of your great-grandparents where you're all dressed up and you're looking super elegant. And it kind of helps that Willow the dog is a white fluff ball. Kind of makes us look like supervillains in a sense. What I'm trying to say is Willow the dog makes us look cool. You know how supervillains have the, the white cat? Well, Willow the dog kind of looks like that with the white floof ball that she is. So we got portraits done. Willow the dog might have had an accident <laughs> at the place. Uh, might have. Can neither confirm nor deny that that happened. <laughs> they were cool with it. They, it was everybody loves Willow. Willow did a marvelous job at focusing on the camera. I just wonder, is this a normal thing? Is this something I shouldn't be bringing up on the radio right now? I haven't gotten any text from Sarah Bradford yet. Eh, give it a minute. 336-777-1600, babe. Uh, 
everything about me trying to picture this taking place in my head is just hilarious. What's most hilarious to you? I, What's the image that's making you chuckle? Her having an accident on your suit. That's no, nah, that didn't happen. Didn't ha- not on my suit. Not on your suit. Not on my suit. Just you all sitting there, dressed the, up in the viewing room. <laughs> Just Willow in between you. Yeah. What a statesman you are. And <laughs> it's gonna be a big portrait that's on our wall. How big is it gonna be? Pretty big portrait. Oh my god. So when you walk into our hub, power move. <laughs> myself, Sarah Bradford. And Willow the dog. Come into a bachelor watch party near you. Boom. <laughs> bachelor watch party. It's unbelievable. Gonna make it happen. Nah, nah. Christmas cards, they're gonna look great. <laughs> we'll send it your way. And you let me know what you think of them. Before we get into the NBA, while we're talking story time, it was funny going to a dash game with my wife yesterday. My wife. And having a couple of friends who are not the biggest sports fans. Like, I doubt they listen to the show or anything like that. And then Kyle, the <laughs> Amazon driver, rolled up, wearing it like Flava Flav wears the the huge clock on him. <laughs> my, my face. Your face. My face. <laughs> a fat head. Him and his lovely wife, Bree, who apparently bothered BDOT at some event in Burlington over the weekend too. Six man of Carolina basketball. Oh, it they they're the best, by the way. Kyle and his wife. But they have future plans, WD. This thing's going on tour, right? Yes. He's creating the Josh Graham Fathead tour. He wanted to take it to a FS1 broadcasted pro bowling event. Apparently, with the ACC baseball tournament being in Durham this week. He plans to show up with my face and try to get that on television during the ACC baseball tournament. So be on the lookout for that. (laughs) Everything about this is fantastic. You can just see this thing from across the park. We just need more locations. We need more locales for the Josh Graham Fathead Tour. So if you have ideas, shoot them off at Josh Graham Radio at WSJS Radio. You want to talk Eastern Conference Finals or Western Conference Finals first? We can get into the West first. We haven't really gotten to that. The West? The way that this is being talked about on television is always through the prism of LeBron James. It's frustrating. Where all throughout the year, regardless of how good the Lakers are, whatever team LeBron's playing for, LeBron's going to be talked about. That's how the media machine works over there and at a lot of the national outlets. So, when they fall behind three games to zip, the reaction is always, what does this mean for LeBron? What does this mean for his legacy? The answer, nothing. It means nothing for his legacy. Or at least nothing negative. Certainly not positive, but nothing negative. The reality is, the Western Conference Finals are about the Nuggets. It's about the Nuggets, not the Lakers. But that's not the way it's being framed. The Nuggets are the better basketball team. They're the number one seat for a reason. And they have the best player in the sport. This is what's supposed to happen. And it's happening. That's the part that is frustrating to watch. But as for LeBron's legacy, 
Michael Jordan's career is not defined by what he did outside of the finals. Neither is LeBron's. Like, if LeBron got swept out in the first round, maybe that's something that might hurt him, albeit at this point of his career, 38, whatever you're getting at this point just feels like icing on the cake. Like, with Michael, who's talking about his return from baseball and losing to the Magic in round two in 95? Who's talking about that? Who's really talking about the times that Michael lost first round series in the 80s? Who? Nobody. You're talking about six for six in the finals. That's what you're talking about with Michael. And with LeBron, you're talking about what he did in the finals. How many rings he has, how many times he's been there, depending on what side of the argument you're on. Nobody years from now is going to be like, you know what the deciding factor was for me. Yeah, he lost to the top-seeded Nuggets with the number one player in the NBA. Oh, yeah, that's what really swayed my opinion. It doesn't really matter in the long, in the big scheme, LeBron legacy discussion. So let's not make it about that. Quickly hitting on the Eastern Conference. Joe Mazzula is toast. Because, and the guy got an extension earlier this year. In the regular season, Boston lost nine home games. Nine times. Boston. In the playoffs, Boston's lost five home games. Boston. And last night, they completely rolled over. And I'm pro-honesty. I like when people tell me the truth. Tell us the truth. I, I like that. But sometimes it's probably best for your job's sake that you don't really tell us the truth sometimes. Here's what I mean. There was one time he decided to play it out at an end of the game and they had a bad possession. I think it was in the Philadelphia series. And afterwards he admitted, yeah, I should have called timeout. And ever since then, everyone's been writing him about timeouts. Why? Because you admitted you made a mistake with the timeouts. Roy Williams never said he made a mistake with the timeouts. Except the time he forgot to tell his his team to foul after a timeout against Clemson, the one time that Clemson won in Chapel Hill, right? So now everyone rides up about the timeouts, and he's partly responsible for that. And then last night, he said this when talking about getting his team ready for a blowout loss. Yeah, just I just didn't have him ready to play. I should have, uh, whatever it was, whether it was the starting lineup or it was an adjustment, just I have to get them in a better place, ready to play, and that's on me. He just went on talking about how it was his fault, his fault, his fault. To the point where I could see someone with the Celtics saying, yeah, you're probably right. It is your fault. And we're going to fire you now. And they're going to. Because that's how poorly organized and poorly coached they've been. They didn't want to get rid of Ime Udoka. But then they had to, given how that situation turned out before the year started. And they lost Hardy, a very key assistant, who was big on their defensive rotations. We've seen how bad their defense has been. They just couldn't get any stops against Miami. They they lost two key. They lost Damon Stoudemire to become the head coach of Georgia Tech. So they were a thin staff after losing Ime Udoka and then promoting Joe Mazzula. He just wasn't prepared. And this is a roster that isn't ready to have a coach figure things out on the fly. You, you're ready to contend right now with Tatum and Brown and a roster that needs to be ready to win immediately. That's not who Joe Mazzula is and... He should be out of the job after this series ends, assuming Boston loses one more time, which they're going to. Boston. You're on the drive with John.
since I tried to out-precise the Geis as Brian Geisiger joins us now. I am not optimistic of how that's going to go, but we'll get to that in a little bit. The Charlotte Hornets had a big night last week. It wasn't treated as a big night because everybody was focused on the number one pick and getting Victor Webanyama, which predictably went to the San Antonio Spurs. Charlotte jumps up two spots, and... I thought the reaction was going to be positive in that, oh, it's Scoot Henderson now. Oh, Scoot Henderson time for Charlotte. But then I read Jonathan Gavoni from ESPN, who is projecting Brandon Miller's the guy, and said on a podcast that everybody he talked to in Chicago, GM, scouts, there it was almost consensus that they believe Brandon Miller from Alabama is going to be the pick. Instead, despite the fact Gavoni even reported that he wasn't great in interviews, seemed to be a bit, uh, a bit out of shape. So that's a little bit alarming. Apparently, you know, BG, <laughs> Mitch went to go see a Mitch Kupchak at the game he dropped 41 at South Carolina and was enamored with Brandon Miller ever since then. There's a lot of time between now and draft day. My read on it at first was it should be Scoot Henderson. He should be the guy. How do you separate Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller? Yeah, well, well, f- well first off, we'll just say these are both, but real quickly, Gavoni also said later on the podcast, he was on with Zach Lowe, that he thought 60-40 Charlotte was going to take Brandon Miller. Um, and that's before, you know, either of these guys have, um, you know, had interviewed or, you know, worked out with Charlotte, at least in terms of like what was publicly known yet, which could certainly sway something, could sway a decision for someone like, Mitch Kupchak, but uh, for me personally, both guys are awesome prospects, right? Like, this, I don't want to ever, I don't want to get to the point where building one guy up means having to tear the other one down. These are both excellent prospects. So you're but, not thinking this is like a vast difference. This is not no, how strongly well, you felt about Lamelo versus James Wiseman a few the, years well, ago. Well, no, certainly not. Uh, not not that extreme, but no, I do think there is absolutely a difference in caliber between Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller. Like I I don't, this is not like two a two B with me. Like I think Scoot is the superior prospect. There is, I have Scoot sort of in his own tier uh, behind Victor Wembenyama as the number two, like clear cut prospect. And I think in a normal non Wembenyama draft, Scoot would be pretty clearly the number one overall pick. You know, I do think Miller is benefiting a little bit from being the number one NCAA prospect. And, and I think he also gets probably a little bit of benefit of getting to play in a system at Alabama um, where, yeah, he was clear cut the number one guy, but that's an offense that really puts a premium on shooting and spacing. So it was good context for him this year uh, in terms of uh, offensive system, at least, but uh, Scoot Anderson, just in a uniquely athletic point guard prospect is in the caliber of guard prospects in terms of athleticism we just haven't seen too many of these guys the last decade. You're thinking of guys like John Wall, um, uh, uh, Eric Bledsoe, uh, West, Russell Westbrook. Um, he is that kind of ca- special caliber of an athlete, a guy that can be a three-level scorer, has shown nice patience and, and good vision as a pick-and-roll playmaker. 
and a guy that looks like he could absolutely come in and be a primary creator in the NBA given, given time and development, but certainly has the ability to fit in next to another guard that wants the basketball a lot with someone like LaMelo. So look, if you're a team like the Hornets, you should be drafting best player, best prospect available, almost no matter what, like they're not close. And just because you look at the wing rotation and say, wow, there aren't a lot of good wings here. I mean, no duh. Uh, you know, you wouldn't draft, you know, Brandon Miller. If they had the number one pick, uh, just because they have Mark Williams, and Nick Richards, that doesn't mean they wouldn't take Victor Wembanyama, right? Like they wouldn't just look at their wing room and say, wow, we need a wing. Let's get a wing in here. They're, they can't draft for fit. They have to go out and get the best prospect right now. Um, Miller's awesome. I think if you were drafting fourth or fifth, he'd be a slam dunk pick. Um, but no, for me, it, it's pretty clear, like Scoot over uh, Brandon Miller for the number two prospect in this draft. I'm so glad. Brian Geisiger, you know him from the BuzzBeat podcast. You know him for his stuff at 24-7 as well. And you know him for schooling me and Outprecise the Geis for years now. But getting to the piece you brought up about the college advantage that Brandon Miller had, I had a scout tell me a couple of months ago that this draft reminds him so much of the 2019 draft where all the oxygen was sucked out of the room by Zion, but it was pretty much, you know, it was pretty much gospel that the second pick was going to be Ja Morant. And the reason why Ja Morant isn't being talked about as an undersized guard the way that Scoot Henderson's being talked about is because there was some reference point of Murray State and the things that John Morant did that we all were able to see, and maybe not as many people were keeping tabs on G League at night or even watching when Scoot Henderson went blow for blow with Victor Webinyama in Vegas last year. Yeah, go watch the first game. They played the they played the doubleheader out in Vegas, and Scoot got hurt and didn't, you know, wasn't available for the second game. But in the in the first game, it was incredible. Like he was unbelievable in terms of half court decision making playmaking uh his scoot was you're finishing. talking about scoot right yeah absolutely yeah i mean like women young was was unbelievable both guys really like showed out but no i'm talking about scoot who, who was going at women and finishing around him at the rim and making passes around him and scoot needs to get better um as a as a shooter but the pull-up shot and the floater are pretty good um he has good energy transfer he has good lower body mechanics like, I think he's going to end up being a, an okay shooter. And at times it looks pretty good. He's again, he's already pretty solid um, in, in the mid range. And, and Morant would also be in this class of like, just like special, you know, point guard athletes of the last decade or so that, that Henderson would be. But Scoot also, if you, I don't know if you've seen him play recently or if you saw him this season with G League Ignite, he doesn't look like a normal uh, rookie point guard. No. Like he's, he's, he's well-built. He's got really long arms. Like he's got a great frame. I know he's listed at six two, but it, he's got a probably like a six nine wingspan. Long, and again, he's already arms. pretty, and long he's built. Arms. He's built like a like a you know fire hydrant too. So, um, like again, I think he's right now the defense is not a strength, but I think you've got to look at the tools and sort of evaluate him. Um, use lean on those tools in your own player development to think that this is a guy that could be a good or at least a passable point of attack defender at some point, which, you know, long-term, if you're building around Scoot and LaMelo hypothetically, which I think Charlotte should be trying to do, 
you know, that is, that would become a concern, right? Like I don't worry about the offensive fit that much with those two guys. It becomes like the perimeter defense, but there's, there's ways you can, could, could construct around that. And I still think there's a chance that Scoot becomes like a positive on ball defender at the next level too. Oh, don't get me started on the LaMelo ball fit thing. You're right. We shouldn't be talking about fit, but even if we were, because LaMelo, yeah. oh, Scoot, oh, he struggled shooting this past year. Well, LaMelo can shoot last I check. And because that works, having an attacking point guard who can rim, um, attack the rim like Scoot can, when that's a huge concern for LaMelo, I, I just see these guys as two separate players. One six two, the guys, the other six seven. One's pass first, the other's more of a scoring guard. They're totally different. Scoot touches the paint every time he wants to, basically. You know, or he forces you to, to send more attention to him when he gets in the when he's trying to get downhill. And what does that mean? That means layups, that means dunks, that means passes to Mark Williams, hypothetically, in the dunker spot for a dunk or a lob. That means free throws. He this is like Scoot is also a guy like if you watched him play these two seasons for G league ignite, like he does some dirty work stuff too. Like he gets on the offensive glass. He competes there. I know the motor didn't always run high defensively, but you see it sort of in other, other parts of his game. And yeah, LaMelo ball is a 41% career catch and shoot uh, three point shooter. Pretty darn good on, on a lot of volume, mind you. And the other thing with LaMelo Look, I don't. You don't want to take the ball out of his hands completely because he's he is a really really special player and creative player and like, you know, a, a one of the one of the ultimate passers of his generation already. But you get Lamelo attacking closeouts. You get him getting to come off of uh, more off ball actions into dribble handoffs or into ball screens, and all of a sudden Lamelo's getting to attack a tilted defense or a closeout or getting to cut into pockets of space. That's when he is so dangerous as a passer. Getting to play that, the make the extra pass, make make the extra pass, the tic tac toe passing, the kind of stuff where you could see very easily. Scoot Henderson bends the defense on a pick and roll. He kicks out. Lamelo Ball drives, and either Mark, the help comes, and it's either a lob to Mark Williams or a kick out to PJ Washington in the corner for a three. Like you don't have to like think that hard to envision how this could really really work. But again. It's it's less about fit and more about that like as good as Brandon Miller is and he's an awesome prospect that I just think Scoot is is superior and should be the guy Charlotte goes with that uh, at number two. Brian Geisinger making our show a lot smarter with his analysis on all things hoop, and now we get to the main event of today's show, which is how precise the guys. Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the guys. If you're new to the proceedings, BG, he knows his stats. He's a bit of a hoop nerd, and I respect the hoop nerdiness of our friend BG. WD has dug up some questions that gives BG a chance to flex, but also gives me a shot. So you're watching Miracle for the first time. Yep. You hadn't seen that. You get to see the greatest upset in sports, the U.S. team upsetting the Russians. Spoiler alert, by the way. The U.S. wins that game. Um, This might be the equivalent of that in sports radio, me trying to to win and outprecise the guys. So I want to start with the Celtics. Because one of the big things that caused their implosion in the finals last year was record-setting numbers of turnovers. So Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in this series against the Heat, 
I want to see if you can figure out what their uh, assist to turnover ratio is. So they have 21 assists combined between the two of them. Okay. How many combined turnovers do they have? In this series, in like this three ser- games? In this series. Okay. Oh, boy. Pretty impressive. Um, you said 21 assists, right? 21 assists. Yeah, I got a number down. All right, I'll go... I'll go 20 turnovers. I got 28 written down. That now feels really high. It is 23. (laughs) More turnovers than assists. Yeah. So not good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Jalen Brown, you might think it's his hand, but then you brought up the context of last year. This is not a new problem for Boston. No. The way that they turn it over. Yeah, Jalen Brown's awesome. Like, incredible athlete, great shooting touch. But, man, he struggles to dribble. And, it, yeah, it does seem like his hand has been messed up all playoffs, too. Or... And he's got the mass, so he's playing through some things. What's the second thing you got? One of the burning questions throughout these playoffs has been, who's the better player right now, Jimmy Butler or Jokic, in these playoffs? That's been a question? Yes. Okay. Who's the Who's the better? So I'm going to focus in on fourth quarter points points per game here. Clutch time. Um, spoiler alert, Jimmy's averaging more than Jokic. Yeah. My question is, how many more points per game in the fourth is cool. Jimmy Butler averaging than Jokic? Yeah. And, of course, Jimmy probably benefiting from getting more, or I don't know, they've, they've had some blowout wins too. Yeah. So maybe, I was going to say, maybe Jokic has benefited from or has, has uh, been hit a little bit from playing less in the fourth quarter. But I don't know. Let's say uh, let's say two points more for Jimmy. For I got fourth four. Quarter. It is 1.6. Butler was 7.9. Jokic, <laughs> 6. <laughs> 6.3. Oh, it's so dumb. <laughs> I hate this game. What's the last one? And in honor of Carmelo Anthony retiring today. he ACC finished, legend. Uh, absolutely. He finishes career ninth in NBA history in points. How many points was that? Oh. In his career. In his career. It was a lot. He scored a lot. <laughs> did he um ninth in NBA history? Yep. Did he get to I'll just I'm gonna go just a round number. I'll say 30k. Andre three three thirty thousand <laughs> points for uh hey! thirty thousand points for uh Carmelo. I have a number that's way too big. I got thirty seven written down. Now that I think about it, it's way too many points. Yeah. <laughs> it's 28,280. Because okay. I just now realized where LeBron's at, and yeah. I'm like, that's a, that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had more time to think about this. That's a Stuff. that's a 3-0 sweep. Next time we catch up with you, with you, we need to talk about NC State's national title hopes because of Casey Morsell coming back. That's right. We do need to do that. Shout out to Carmelo Anthony. Respect to a pretty unbelievable career. Yeah, he's a he's the equivalent. His career is the equivalent of the three and a half hour movie that if it was an hour shorter, people would like a lot more. That's that's Carmelo. Like if his career ended six years ago after the 2016 Olympics, I think people and there weren't six, seven years of memes of how old he was. I think I, people would remember him differently. I really. Do. I think the. I do think the Portland years were good for him. I think it was the the the, the OKC run that was a, that was struggle. I really think the circumstance are what hurt him the most. Like he came along at the the peak of like he and LeBron. Like their their careers are matched, and you know just a time when the the game his prime was being lorded over by you know the best or second best player in the history of basketball. Makes sense. Stuff.
Brian Geisinger, it's good to see you, and uh, we'll chat sometime soon, I'm sure. Sounds good, guys.